Alright, hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale. And uh, yeah, today, so um, I announced uh, in the last episode we did with Dr. Class Cray, our special guest, that the next show I would be doing would be a show on the discussion between unfree will with Val the Atheist and uh, on Skeptics and Seekers. And due to Val's uh, work schedule, unfortunately that had to be delayed. So uh, at least at the moment, it looks like we're aiming for Saturday, June 26th to do that. Um, also, uh, I told everybody uh, before in terms of announcements, I was invited to speak at a uh, major philosophical society and do a debate or some kind of lecture or something like that on a topic uh, with that. Um, that also is going to be delayed, so the guy organizing that um, mentioned, well, it, maybe he's a little bit busy, so he wants to wait till the end of summer. So, yeah, look out for that. Um, in terms of new announcements, um, the next, uh, so so I'm almost finished uh, the Kalam Cosmological, my Cosmological Argument Part 3B section. That should, will be up, uh, I guarantee it, uh, by next Saturday, next so that'll be the 19th. I'll have that up for sure um, for you guys. 99.99% certain unless I, you know, I get into an accident, have to go back to the hospital or something like that. But um, yeah, that will be up. And then part four will follow soon after that. Um, that's already done. I just need to do finishing touches for the video and stuff for part four. Um, I also got invited by the atheist, famous atheist, uh, Tom Jump, to do a debate slash discussion with him on my evidences on his YouTube channel uh, for why I think God, and specifically the Christian God, is true. Um, so I have some, some ideas of arguments I want to go over with him on, on his show, so I'll be posting that up on RSM when that comes out. Uh, that's scheduled for July 10th. Um, and then, yeah, once I'm, I'm finished with um, my course on June 22nd, I'll have more time to start getting my own guests onto RSM. So, for example, I'm, I'm hoping to get Craig Keener back on um, and Dr. Graham Twelftree, um, if, if he'll agree, uh, to come on. So, so, yeah, I've got a few guests in, in mind, uh, some high-profile Christian guests or scholars and apologists on some topics. Um, I, I also got uh, an email from uh, someone um, wanting to come on to my show and speak about the issue of Christian minimalism. Um, so we're going to be setting that up after June 22nd and I'm finished with that course, uh, the teaching course and that sort of thing. Um, also, uh, I'm going to, after the course is done, I'm going to start reaching out to uh, Shroud experts, uh, Joe Marino and Hugh Ferry, to, to see if I can... Uh, do a couple Shroud shows this summer by bringing on actual experts. So it's going to be a new format, the Shroud Trials, the, or the Shroud on Trial, something like that. And uh, we're going to be bringing on actual experts in the field that we're debating. And, and so uh, through Joe, I'm hoping to get a medieval historian, Cheryl White, uh, to interview her about some of the evidences show, alleging to show that the Shroud is medieval outside of the Carbon-14. So she's a historian. Uh, and then later on in the summer, Hugh Ferry has a connection with an actual carbon-14 scientist. So obviously I want to go over with him the evidence from the carbon-14 and, and that sort of thing. So we'll see if we can, if I can get that done, if everybody will agree. Um, what else? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, another exciting announcement before we get into today's topic is um, David Russell has reached out to me and, and uh, asked me 
um, to start up a new sort of supplemental podcast for, for each of our things, which I'll post up on, on Real Seekers. But every month or, or so, depending on our availability, he wants to start up this thing called Theo Geeks, the Theo Geeks podcast, um, where basically we get together and it's uh, kind of aimed at Christianity. So we go over an, an important biblical issue and examine the texts, uh, do a little bit of exegesis and determine what the Bible's teaching on a given issue is. And then, you know, we can go beyond that and give our take on it philosophically or whatever, morally, whatever it is the issue is. So, you know, for example, that could be anything from interpreting the days of Genesis or the atonement. How do we make sense of the atonement to um, what I'm hoping uh, to do at the end of June for our first topic is answer. I've been having a bit of a back and forth with Rainbow Peter and um, or P just Peter for short, but um, on the issue of the law, the difference between the Old Testament commands and New Testament commands, you know, things changed and Peter's under this mistaken notion, well, that must be a contradiction then. The, the New Testament commands about not getting circumcised contradict the Old Testament commands that Jews must get circumcised and stuff like that. So I'm hoping our first topic, this is what I pitched to David Russell and we'll see if he agrees, is going to be, did Jesus abolish uh, the Torah and how does that relate to the distinction between moral, civil, and ceremonial law that um, pretty much all scholars agree is in the, is the case in the Bible um, in defiance of what Peter alleges, uh, that there's an actual contradiction. So, so yeah, we're going to be looking at, well, what's the difference between contrary commands and contradictory commands? They're not the same thing. Um, so that's my hope there um, in terms of announcements. Yeah, uh, with that said, let's get into today's topic. So. Today, I want to do a quick solo show on my final philosophical essay from the winter semester from my philosophy of art and aesthetics course. And for my final essay, I did a essay on an argument for God's existence from beauty. Um, and this is something that I hadn't looked into before until this I was forced to for this class. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to share my, my essay with you guys and share my findings in that respect. Now one thing, I, so I've posted on my blog site, you can get my essays for free and as well as various scholarly sources in the philosophy of aesthetics and that sort of thing that back up my point of view and argument in this essay. But uh, just be aware that with the essay, I'm posting two versions. So I, I'm posting my rough version and that has all the professor's feedback. So you can see what he liked, what he didn't like and stuff like that as well as my final essay. And uh, just be aware that the reason I'm publishing the rough copy along with a revised good copy is, um, so number one, I, I don't have full uh, professor feedback on the final good copy. And I know that that helps uh, some of you guys in the audience to see, okay, what does a professional philosopher think of what Dale's saying here? Uh, and that, you know, what are some issues to think about problems, good things, bad things, stuff like that. So that's why I like to, to post up the feedback. Um, as well, um, I had some medical issues right at the end of this semester, so I, I wasn't able to f finish off a, a good uh, copy. I, I kind of had to like just copy and paste from my rough version towards the end, uh, just copy and paste sections from my rough version and just put it in as is, uh, just because I, I was unable to finish the proper essay. But 
Yeah, uh, just by way of feedback, for professional philosopher feedback, I, I did end up getting, regardless of the issues um, with the essay, I still finished off with an A- minus uh, for the essay. So that'll give you, even if you don't have the feedback, it'll give you some sense of, okay, where does, it, where does the argument stand? Where does the essay stand uh, within secular philosophy and that sort of thing, and give you some kind of sense of how I did, uh, despite the problems, uh, not being able to polish off a, a finished good copy uh, and that sort of thing. So, okay, with that said, let's get into it then. So the argument for God from beauty. Um, how do we go about looking at this issue? Okay, so the first thing to understand is, um, okay, well, how does the argument, how would the argument work? And essentially what uh, we're trying to do is say that God is the cause, ultimate uh, cause or explanation uh, for aesthetic value as well as uh, aesthetic value judgments. So that's what my argument is trying to explain. We have aesthetic values, you know, something is beautiful, we value something as beautiful or disvalue it as ugly or something like that and, you know, a whole bunch of aesthetic terms we could apply to something. And also we have a cognitive component where we make a value judgment. We have a cognitive belief. That thing is beautiful. That thing is ugly. Um, so we have these aesthetic values and value judgments. What explains them or causes them? Uh, and then the final answer is going to be God. That's that's what we're trying to prove here. Um, so that's, in a essence, how the argument would work. Obviously, um, this is just a quick solo show on my, on my essay, but uh, if I were doing a proper uh, full-on show like I'm doing with the cosmological argument, I would develop premises and make a deductive argument um, or inductive argument for you guys to spell everything out. But just for our sake, I'm just keeping it simple at this point because this is just for my essay at school and, you know, I didn't develop it everything fully uh, just for a 4,000-word essay. Obviously, I, I couldn't be comprehensive and that sort of thing and do, do justice to it. Um, but I do think that I provide a sufficient basis to, to see that, yeah, there's something here. That this argument is often neglected, and it shouldn't be. That there, is, there is something here that we can use aesthetic value and value judgments, or aka beauty, um, to say, to prove that God does in fact exist. So, yeah, in, in terms of how my approach works. So the first thing that I'm, I do in my final essay, because, again, it was only 4,000 words, in the rough copy, I tried to do more like a thesis option where I covered all of the various options, the various types of theories that we have to explain uh, the origin and, and nature of aesthetic values and aesthetic value judgments. And... Um, there are various positions there, and I gave the pros and cons, and I evaluated those in terms of the best explanation inference criteria. So things like plausibility, explanatory power, explanatory scope, and as well as simplicity, or, or employing the least amount of ad hoc assumptions as the way to privilege. Well, the explanation that posits God is the best explanation. So it's an, it's an abductive argument. But ultimately, in the final essay, you guys will see, I, the, the prof kind of recommended to me, he's like, well, look, in a short little 4,000-word essay, you don't have, you can't do justice to the topic and that sort of thing. And you'll, you'll see in my rough essay, just very brief kind of thing. So he's like, rather do a compare and contrast. So so you think that disp that um one view, dispositional realism, 
is is the best of the naturalistic alternatives, and then compare that to the theistic dispositional realist option or a non-natural agentism or you know just plain theism and, and argue that theism is better. So, so that's kind of what I was aiming for in the final one. Um, but I use the other theories as a way to uh, develop, okay, well, what are the main, what is the data? What are the main aesthetic facts that have to be explained by a given hypothesis? So yeah, that's what we're basically doing in, in this essay. I'm using these criteria and evaluating using the various theories to identify what are the facts relevant to the philosophy of aesthetics and aesthetic values and value judgments. Uh, and then I want to say, okay, well, what explains that better? Dispositional realism or uh, God, uh, non-natural agentism or whatever you want to call it. Let's get into it and first outline some of the various positions, right? So. In terms of aesthetic values and value judgments, um, there are various positions, right? So in the first place, you can say, well, are aesthetic value judgments, are they actually statements in a philosophical sense? Are they actually asserting something's true or not? On that front, um, I think that we would have to say, obviously, the answer is yes. Um, we are trying to state that it's true. This thing is ugly it's true this thing is beautiful or whatever uh tigers are beautiful or something like that and so this is the first feature i want to establish but there are people that argue against this so they're they're called non-cognitivists so they just like within moral values there's cognitivism which says moral values yes there's true or false facts about uh moral values well, same in aesthetics. Cognitivists would take the position, yes, an aesthetic value judgment is either true or false. There's aesthetic facts that exist in the world. Non-cognitivists say, no, there, there are no aesthetic facts. Just like uh, they'll say that non-cognitivists in morality say there's no such thing as moral facts or truths or anything like that either. And within the moral context, there are, there are various... Uh, solutions. There's things called emotivism and then imperativism, um, where, you know, the latter is basically, you're just giving imperatives, you're just giving commands, but there's no truth or falsity to them. Um, emotivism, though, is what we want to focus on here, because um, the emotivism option says, no, look, moral values are just expressions of our emotion. You know, don't rape that don't rape that baby or something like that is tantamount to just ugh, you, you raped a baby I, I don't like that I, that doesn't feel good um you know you're just expressing your emotions oh that makes me angry when you kill when you kill people uh, or steal my wallet um and it's the same deal with aesthetics right so so aj Iyer air made this argument for a aesthetic motivism and he basically just argued that well, look, no, uh, when we say that this thing is beautiful or this thing is not, that, that really just reduces down to an expression of our emotions. Like, ah, I, I like this. This makes me feel happy. Uh, you know, this art makes me feel sad. Um, it, it ultimately reduces down to that. There is no, our aesthetic value judgments are not true or false. That's a total misnomer. Um, so that's what this uh, non-cognitivist motivism uh, position says in terms of aesthetic value 
uh, specifically value judgments. And aesthetic values would just be our the experience of our emotions. Um, you know, Cly uh, Clyde Bell uh, was a famous early 20th century philosopher uh, of art and aesthetics, and he kind of said, well, aesthetic values, what are they? They're tantamount to an aesthetic emotion, and a special emotion called the aesthetic emotion. And that's since been discredited. Uh, mo most people don't believe that because it's very ad hoc, right? Depositing some kind of special emotion. No, aesthetic emotions, there's no such thing. We just have emotions um, and that sort of thing. And, you know, most people have moved on to say aesthetic values are some other kind of experience, like a, an attitude or something like that. But that's beside the point. The, the, the main thing here is... Um, Aesthetic values are said to be grounded in some kind of emotion, and aesthetic value judgments are said to be the expression of that emotion. Uh, so, so that's what emotivism thinks, grounds, or ultimately explains aesthetic values and aesthetic value judgments. Okay, so what do we say by way of assessment, then, of this view? So, in the first place, it's just obviously false. You're a fool if you believe that emotivism is true. Air was was quite literally a fool. And it's it's because that we have a prop everybody has a properly basic belief, very strong, 100%, I would say, degree of warrant that there are such things as aesthetic correctness conditions. It's true or it's false that Picasso is beautiful. It's true or it's false that you know a, a dead carcass is ugly. Or revolting or whatever aesthetic term you want to apply to something like that um, you know we 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 may dispute the facts of the matter and, and say whether something is in fact whether it's true or not whether something is beautiful or something like that but we all mean to convey and know understand in a properly basic ba way that when we apply aesthetic value judgments we are making an indicative statement we are indicating that what we are saying is either true or false. And yeah, that's the first major argument that destroys this and, and establishes our first feature that any hypothesis has to explain is that there are these aesthetic correctness conditions. Aesthetic value judgments are either true or false. Um, now, going beyond just the property basic belief, uh, Dr. Peter Kivy. Uh, he's argued in a critical paper that the emotivist position also fails to explain the phenomenon of aesthetic disagreement. Uh, here's a second feature of aesthetics that needs to be explained by any given hypothesis. Look, we have disagreement aesthetically, right? We, when we make statements that are supposed to be have correctness conditions, this I think Picasso's beautiful, I think Picasso's ugly, we have disagreements, again, conveying the fact that we know there are correctness conditions. Someone's wrong. Both of them can't be right. Um, there's this disagreement. We expect the other to think along the same lines as, as ourselves, aesthetically, and stuff like that. So emotivism doesn't really handle aesthetic disagreements well. Uh, really, there should be no aesthetic disagreements at all, because if emotivism is true, Aesthetic values and value judgments are just emotions and our expression of those emotions. Um, there's no reason we would say, no, 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 you're wrong. Um, Picasso isn't ugly. It's, it's beautiful or something like that. Um, we shouldn't have that, right? Because he's just expressing his emotions. He, he feels sad or revolted when he looks at Picasso. Who are, you can't disagree with that. That's how he feels. 
Um, so there shouldn't be aesthetic disagreement. So those are two features that are established and problematic on the emotivist view. Uh, now, emotivists have attempted to explain away aesthetic disagreement basically as nothing more than factual disagreement. So they, they say, well, it reduce, there is aesthetic disagreement. That's undeniable. That's a fact of reality that nobody can deny. People have disputes over aesthetic values and value judgments. But if you look beneath the surface, so to speak, these aren't disagreements about values. They're not uh, valuational disputes. They're really factual disputes that about the work of art's descriptive features. And, and that's what it ultimately reduces down to. But that, number one, that's totally ad hoc because that's not what it seems we're doing. It seems we are having true value disagreements. And this understanding, it's very forced and unnatural and therefore lacks explanatory power because, you know, aesthetic terms like beautiful or garish or expressive, um, they're just much more naturally understood um, as disputes that are truly at the valuational level or the level of normative values and that sort of thing. They're, they're meant to be normative in nature. So yeah, I'll, I'll post up the link to Kivy's paper arguing conclusively against this Ayer's view here. Uh, but what just one last final feature of aesthetic value judgments um, is the fact that there's aesthetic education and development. We, it's also a fact of the world that em that emotivism denies or doesn't explain properly that, you know, there's aesthetic growth. Our tastes become refined over time, aesthetically, you know, like, and it's not just about paintings, it's music. We become more refined. Maybe you like the orchestra, music, classical music or something. And, when you were a teenager, you only liked hip hop or rap or something like that. So there, there's growth and refinement in terms of aesthetic development. Um, and you can be educated uh, to grow in the value judgments and, and have more correct aesthetic value judgments. So yeah, many, many people recognize this as just a fact of aesthetic, a fact of our worlds, and that there are people who are trained um, to have a more refined aesthetic standard of taste relative to other people and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail when we come to another theory um so so yeah I, I think on emotivism once again we wouldn't expect emotivism doesn't it lacks explanatory power and scope when it comes to the fact that there's aesthetic development and and growth or education no if, if we're just expressing our emotions there is no development. I feel an emotion at one time, I feel another emotion at another time, and I'm just expressing it. Um, so that doesn't make sense. So we, we've kind of established uh, a few features here through evaluating the emotivist position. Okay, um, so we see that emotivism doesn't work, and we've established three features of the aesthetic world, or re the reality of aesthetics through that. What would be another way of explaining or grounding values and value judgments uh, in aesthetics? Well, then we come to the cog a cognitivist or realist position where aesthetic values known as natural objectivism. Okay, so with natural objectivism, so this says that when we say something's beautiful, we judge that something's beautiful and, you know, it, it, it's a property of the object, of the aesthetic or artistic object itself. The object it itself is beautiful or is ugly or is garish or whatever aesthetic term you want to use. So, so therefore, aesthetic the aesthetic value resides not so much in the person, the human mind perceiving it or the human subject, but it's solely grounded in some natural 
property of the given object itself. And uh, that gets into debates. You know, there's many different proposals here. So some um, some people say, well, what it, what is that natural property um, in the object that constitutes beauty? Is there a, is there such a thing as a property as beauty, uh, or is the property of beauty just an emergent property that emerges from other properties, um, or is it ultimately just reducible to non-aesthetic properties like factual? This, you know factual properties it's this length this width and stuff like that and there's there's tons of debates in the philosophy of aesthetics over that um as, as we'll see i i'm i'm gonna well I, I won't get into it now into my view yet but um yeah there, there's debates on this front as to okay well what would the property of the objects be uh, to ground aesthetic values of beauty or ugly or whatever it is. And, you know, this goes back to the ancient Greeks. They had notions of, like, symmetry, you know, symmetrical or proportionality. This is the, the natural property that grounds beauty, uh, or at least in part grounds beauty and stuff like that. But there, there's... Alexander Proust gets into this. There's problems with these views, right? Because ultimately you can always find examples or counterexamples to these types of uh, easily reductionistic views of, of what the property of beauty in an object is. You know, the, for example, the Parthenon. Oh, that's so symmetrical. That's proportional. It is. That's why it's beautiful. Um, but actually, it's not symmetrical. It doesn't have the property of being proportional. It's bent. It, it creates an optical illusion of proportionality or symmetry in us, in the human subject, um, due to the way light is and that sort of thing. But it itself, the pantheon itself, the building doesn't have the property of proportionality. So, so every time, um, you know, you could expand that and say, oh, okay, fine, either proportionality or the property of creating an illusion uh, of proportionality. But once you go that route, you're you're starting to get the hint that well, illusions—that's a, a property of a, a human subject, um, of a human mind, or a perceiving mind. So now you're it started sort of hinting that the object itself is not enough if you if you go that route and, and try to modify what these properties could be um, and that's what I'm going to be arguing later on as well but um, so you get the point here so so irrespective of the issue of what specific natural properties might be said to ground aesthetic values and judgments and you know what is their their nature is it emergent or is it reductionistic to some non-aesthetic property or something like that. Um, the point here is that natural objectivism uh, does adequately explain the fact of aesthetic object relevance. So this is another feature, obvious feature of aesthetic, that the object itself is necessary. The, the artistic object, the, the piece of me, the sound waves of the music, the, you know, the, the colors of the painting, the, the, words in the book, uh, you know, all of these things, these things are necessarily relevant. They're necessary conditions for someone to have a, a relevant aesthetic value, uh, to ground aesthetic values and aesthetic judgments. Uh, so I think that this, uh, this provides a fourth uh, feature that we're going to need to, any hypothesis needs to explain, that the object is necessarily relevant. The properties of the object itself are important. Um, this view, natural objectivism, also provides uh, a sound basis for uh, aesthetic correctness conditions. It performs better than 
emotivism did above in, in this respect and and that sort of thing. So I, I think it does better on, on some of these features, but it, it ultimately it lacks plausibility, um, especially in its more reduct, reductivist versions, because it, it doesn't fit well um, with how we use aesthetic terms of assessment. So it doesn't it doesn't help us explain aesthetic value judgments. That requires a human subject, a mind, to make the judgment. A, you know, cognition is required to make a belief. That thing is beautiful. If there's no human no human beings to make a judgment, then value aesthetic value judgments can't exist with just an object alone. So it just lacks uh, explanatory scope on that front. It doesn't explain it at all. And just to clarify, uh, so I didn't necessarily mean human subject without a subject. So God is a subject, right? The, a perceiving subject, an angel. It could, it, so it's basically just saying without any kind of perceiving subject to ha to ground the aesthetic values, the object itself alone, just an object without any perceiving subject, whether human or, or God or whatever, uh, alone is not enough. So just to qualify that, it's not necessarily about you have to have a human subject. No, you just have to have some kind of subject is the point I was making here. And secondly, let's think think of it for a second about aesthetic um, values. Are they really grounded in some natural property of the object itself? Well, uh, Dr. Philip Tallon, who, who's written in a, in a great book, you know, the 24 Arguments for God's Existence, the planting a project there, he, he's made up, number one, he's done an argument from play. He says the fact that human beings like to play proves God exists, which is an interesting, unique argument. Um, but he also does this argument from beauty. And I like Dr. Philip Tallon. He kind of echoes uh, some of the other philosophers like uh, Gerald Levinson, who, who kind of come up with the fact that, um, well, really, aesthetic properties are not reducible in the first place to uh, non-aesthetic natural properties. They they have to be aesthetic properties in their own right, uh, either existing in the object or they're emergent from the base base properties, like the width, length, you know, stuff like that. But also if we, we imagine, you know, the aesthetic values can't exist without subjects. I think about it for a second. Think of a work, all the works of arts in a museum just sitting there or a beautiful piece of music playing on the radio. Um, or in a cassette player or something like that. Um, is it really beautiful if nobody's there to hear it? Um, if there's no su conscious subject hearing the notes or looking at the paintings and making that, having some kind of interaction with the object? No, I, I don't think that uh, an object is beautiful in and of itself based on its natural properties. It requires more than that. It requires a subject to make a to have some kind of valuable experience of the object's properties uh, and then form that cognitive judgment this is beautiful this is not so this is where I, I think that natural objectivism kind of fails it, it it doesn't work on its own definitely the the properties of the aesthetic object are necessary they're a necessary requirement uh, so you can't divorce aesthetic value and value judgments from the object, uh, but at the same time they're insufficient. They're, they're, there's a need for a, a conscious subject to ground the value, aesthetic values and judgments themselves. So, so that's why, yeah, I don't think that this one works. 
And finally, uh, another argument against this uh, objective, pure naturalistic, pure objectivism view is the time-honored one by G, famous philosopher G.E. Moore, um, which is basically the open question argument. Um, you know, that provides a strong basis to question the explanatory power of any account that posits aesthetic values are simply reducible to some natural property of a given object itself, and, and that's it. There's always that meaningful open question as to whether it's true or false that the natural property in question is in fact aesthetically good or not um so so yeah uh i think those views kind of fail there now one kind of nuance with this objectivism is the evolutionary explanation so they'll say well what's the natural property maybe the natural properties take into account conscious subjects or involve conscious subjects in some way uh, but it's ultimately reducible down to some natural property like natural selection, survivability, or something like that. So what about evolutionary accounts? Let, let's take a little bit of an excursus and evaluate some of the evolutionary accounts under this objectivism and natural property understanding of aesthetic values and judgment. Evolutionary hypotheses. It, it's important to note that there isn't just one theory. There, there are several positions on this front, but by far, I'm going to focus on the three main positions, evolutionary hypotheses or positions to, exp to explain the grounding of aesthetic values and aesthetic value judgments. So the first of these is the, the most common one, the ones advocated by like Richard Dumboy Dawkins, sorry, Richard Dawkins and uh, E.O. Wilson. So it's the traditional natural selection view. Now, believe it or not, uh, at one time, Charles Darwin said that natural selection was rubbish and couldn't explain aesthetic values. So he invented ad hocly this thing called sexual selection and that above and beyond natural selection or survivability. There's this also, well, mates pick you if you're the peacock that has the brightest and best feathers and stuff like that. But most scientists today, evolutionists today, say, no, well, that's really just natural selection. So it's all subsumed into the natural selection uh, theory. So that's the predominant view. Um, then there's the biophilia hypothesis. And then finally, there's the hypothesis of social cohesion. So we're going to look at uh, each of these, starting with uh, natural selection. Uh, so maybe that's the property it, it, the property if an object uh if, if something contributes to the survivability and natural selection of a, of a, you know a conscious perceiving aesthetic subject uh well that that's ultimately what grounds um our aesthetic values and why we have value judgments and stuff like that of, of various aesthetic objects so how does this one deal uh how does this one um do in terms of assessment Basically, uh, everybody noticed, including Charles Darwin, Alf, you know, all the way back, and, and all scientists today recognize that uh, what Darwin called sexual selection, the, these features like the peacock's vibrant and bright colors and their plumage and stuff like that, the, these are evolutionary costly in terms of survivability. They harm organisms. They make it harder for, for organisms to, to survive, and this requires an explanation then. And... Uh, what most scientists today now say in terms of natural selection will say, no, this is natural selection. And basically these evolutionary costly uh, features that we call beautiful or something like that actually signal health and fitness. In other words, 
you know, you, you, you're so great and so healthy. You can survive even with an extravagant handicap. And this is why you're sexually desirable to pass on your genes and, you know, have natural selection take, take effect. Um, and this applies to human beauty as well, according to these people. So, you know, sometimes they'll say uh, it seems to be a fact that human physical beauty is basically health certification. That's the theory here. Um, in Steven Pinker's words, he says, look, quote unquote, both sexes want a spouse that who has developed normally and is free of infection. Not only is a healthy spouse vigorous, non-contagious and more fertile, but the spouse's hereditary resistance to the local parasites will be passed on to the children. Uh, we haven't evolved stethoscopes and tongue depressors, but an eye for beauty does some of the same things. Uh, so that's what the theory is here. This, this uh, hypothesis among atheists and skeptics is just purely rubbish, because uh, think about it, it, it's just, duh, common sense. If you're saying, look, even Charles Darwin was smart enough to realize that this theory is stupid, because it's basically saying, well, in order to get A, uh, you take away A uh, kind of thing. You, get, you give yourself less A kind of thing, right? So it's in order to become more survivable, uh, to pass on more qualified to pass on your genes, you take on these bright colors and these features that make it more likely that you're not going to survive and pass on your genes. Um, you know, and people can see the absurdity of this desperation in the, in, of, of a hypothesis on the part of atheists and skeptics that are evolutionists or, or go on this. It's contradictory. Uh, it, uh, sorry. It, um, now, obviously, that's oversimplifying things. You know, there could be a cost-benefit analysis involved, and to what degree does uh, this overcome? But most, you know, mo most people look at it, including Charles Darwin himself, and says, "No, that this isn't good enough. This is why he had to invent something called sexual selection over and above natural selection, because he's like, no, there's more than just a health certification going on here." Um, and he's not the only one. Um, ornithologist Richard Prum, uh, who advocates another theory called null theory uh, that's kind of similar to the sexual selection theory of Charles Darwin. Um, and he, he actually gives an argument that the aesthetic mating choice is not correlated to fitness, but to beauty proper. So taking that bird plumage, that peacock with that beautiful tail as an example, he argues, look, natural selection explains such extravagance as an advertisement of good genes, a health certification advertisement. Uh, but Prume really says, uh, no, actually, uh, it's that the fact that these guys survive is because they're sexually desirable uh, or attractive in terms of aesthetic allure and preference, not survival. We're not, and just think of it, when, so Prume argues that scientifically it's been proven that female birds actually desire the beauty of the male in and of itself. They're not saying, oh, he's beautiful, therefore he's fit, therefore I want him. And that, that's apparently, uh, there's scientific support behind this in terms of female sexual selection in nature. And think of it in your own human attraction. We're not, we're not attracted to people because they're fit. We're attracted to them, to their beauty, because they're actually beautiful in and of itself. They, period. That's it. You're attract. I find you attractive. Um, we're not going. I find you attractive. Therefore, you must be healthy. There now, I like you. Um, so, this natural selection theory is just 
complete rubbish and doesn't exp doesn't actually work. It's just desperation to avoid the obvious truth, in my humble opinion. And uh, yeah, the the ornithologist Richard Prume has really devastated the natural selection evolutionary hypothesis in terms of explaining beauty. No, there's this desire. Animals and human beings desire beauty in and of itself. Uh, period. And yeah, so, so Prum's major contention here is that natural selection cannot, even in theory, account for the amount and variety of beauty found in nature. He states, quote-unquote, the way nature is, the nature of flowers, the nature of birdsong and bird plumages, implies that subjective experiences of beauty are fundamentally important in biology. They are not reducible to healthy, healthiness or survivability. The world looks the way it does and is the way it is because of their vital importance of sor as, sources, as uh, sources of selection in organic diversity. And he's talking about beauty itself has that vital importance. Uh, aesthetic beauty and that sort of thing. Yeah, if you're if you're interested in uh, checking out Richard Prum's work, uh, you can actually get the paper for free, where he talks about this. For example, in his paper called "Quote Unquote Duck Sex: Aesthetic Evolution and the Origin of Beauty." Uh, so that's a 2014 paper, and it's available online for free. I'll try to post up the the web link and the sources for you guys. So, um, yeah. Um, there you go. Uh, okay, well, let's move on. So that was an utter failure for atheists and skeptics. Um, what about other evolutionary theories? Um, there are other ones, right? Well, the second one we mentioned of the three main ones is the biophilia hypothesis. So what is that? So basically, where uh, natural selection hypotheses focus upon mate selection as the driving uh, grounding or origination for aesthetic values and value judgments, uh, the biophilia hypothesis rather focuses on habitat selection instead. So the, the habitat, and these were these theories are developed by people like the neuroscientist Anjan Chatterjee, uh, who's written, quote-unquote, look, there, there are strong evolutionary forces, uh, selected minds, that find some places more beautiful than others. And we have these powerful emotional responses evolved to guide and encourage our actions. Um, in order to select habitats that improve our chances at surviving and reproducing and passing on our genes. Uh, so, you know, other researchers that uh, take the biophilia hypothesis in terms of explaining aesthetic value and value judgments are people like Bernhard Russo, um, Dennis Dutton, uh, people like him. And uh, they really say, yeah, it, it's, it's habitat selection that really grounds our modern day aesthetic preferences. Um, and that's what explains uh, why we think some things are beauty, beautiful and others aren't. And uh, the first thing to note here is there's actually empirical support um, for this theory to some extent, for this hypothesis. Um, and, and actually, E.O. Wilson, he, he falls in this category too. I said he was part of natural selection, but he, he would also, um, a sociobiologist who kind of... Uh, invented the term biophilia in the process here so yeah um but um yeah it's uh, there's a there was a 10 country survey of art preferences that was done and they all showed this universal appreciation among human beings in these various cult countries and cultures uh for images of things like water trees uh plants 
other human beings and, and animals and stuff like that, uh, along with specific types of landscapes. And uh, some scientists cite this as showing proof for the biophilia hypothesis um, and, and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, studies ha have also shown that quote-unquote leisure activities in such habitats can reduce psychological stress on human beings. Um, they've also shown that views of urban landscapes with vegetation produce a lot less anxiety um, than those uh, urban settings without vegetation, for example. Um, you know, we, we all know that uh, op studies have shown that opposite, when you're in a prison or something, or in solitary, these have profound detrimental effects on human beings and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, th this in a nutshell is what the theory is. It says, look, our aesthetic values and, and value judgments are ultimately grounded evolutionarily, evolutionarily in our habitat selection rather than our mate selection based on how healthy they are, the mate is, or something like that. Now there's also been several criticisms of, the, of this theory. Um, so it's because the theory, the biophilia hypothesis, really says that, well look, our, our habitat selection preferences that ground our aesthetic uh, judgments and preferences and that sort of thing really evolved out of the parklands from the trees and grasslands in Africa, in the savanna of Africa, at a specific point in human evolution. And that's the, the point the, that the theory uh, requires in order to work. And there's been several criticisms on this front. So in, in the first place, one criticism is that, well, in the first place, there is actually no account for why these initial aesthetic preferences were established specifically in this Pleistocene era in the savanna of Africa. And then from there, they were evolutionarily preserved into the modern day. Why weren't they replaced as we moved out into different uh, habitats and later things? Why didn't, I, why didn't people in Northern Europe develop preferences for snow or something like that, or snow-capped mountains? I don't know. Um, you know, we, we do like those, but... Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like there, there was no evolution. The, the theory just says, biophilia hypothesis just says, we got this habitat selection preference grounding our aesthetic values. Boom, it was locked in ever since the Pleistocene era. And they were never replaced with new aesthetic preferences for different landscapes with human global dispersal. That's quite implausible and in fact uh, impossible to be to occur given what we know scientifically about the way evolution works. Um, so as, as Whitley Kaufman states, quote-unquote, the very essence of evolution is that new traits replace earlier ones because they are better. New faculties do not evolve to serve earlier faculties, but to serve the organism as a whole. Um, so yeah, this is quite implausible and, and quite the failure on that basis alone. Um, but if that, even if that was not enough, atheists and skeptics are still in a word, world for her world of hurt if they want to use this evolutionary theory because there's another criticism that um, there's actually considerable scientific and historical evidence that our hominin ancestors rather than thriving mainly in a savanna habitat as predicted by this theory they actually lived in a variety of ha different habitats including forest and that sort of thing uh, during this uh, fundamental era when we were developing these aesthetic values preferences and stuff like that so uh yeah that's just a factual refutation of the theory 
uh, modern science has kind of discovered you're a fool if you believe this. It, it was just wrong kind of thing and based on wrong facts about uh, development of human beings and their evolution. Uh, so that's kind of devastating. The biophilia hypothesis is not looking so good, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, and, and also with natural selection, I forgot to mention that there's also Philip Tallon has developed a, a great argument based on look, if it's about survivability, why do I find things that are dangerous to me, like tigers, to be beautiful? They'll eat my rumps. Uh, they're they should be ugly, and we run away from them and that sort of thing. If the natural selection hypothesis was true, so that's. Another element, we find certain dangerous things attractive, alluring, be even beautiful, uh, and that doesn't fit evolutionary uh, hypotheses from natural selection. But, okay, great, so we've covered natural selection, we've covered the biophilia hypothesis for habitat selection, they've all failed. Um, what's the third and last main evolutionary theory that I want to cover here? Uh, well, it's the social cohesion theory. And social cohesion theories um, basically say, well, evolutionarily, aesthetics, uh, they look to the group, not to the individual, for adaptive advantage. And that's how they try to explain the evolutionary aesthetics. Um, so social cohesion theories usually imply there's kind of, kind of a multi-level selection theory going on, basically where nature is not only selecting out the fittest individuals, but also the fittest communities. So there's natural selection of the at a community-wide level, not just on the level of which individuals survive. So people who advocate for this, uh, people are like Noel Carroll, um, who says, he says, quote-unquote, look, art, quote-unquote, bestows, bestows evolutionary advantages upon groups insofar as art contributes immensely to foregoing or forging social cohesion among the members of a group both by engendering fellow or converging feelings amongst amongst them and by educating those feelings in the way of the group's presiding culture. So, so yeah, Carol views communal aesthetic practices like dance, uh, song, telling stories um, as kind of like an emotional contagion within the community. And this is uh, within the positive sense, and that's why it was evolutionarily selected and that's that's where we got our aesthetic values from, and, and value make our aesthetic value judgments based on. It's ultimately grounded in this social cohesion. Now, it's important to note that social cohesion theory is really an explanation for art, not for beauty proper. So it lacks explanatory scope. It can't explain beauty, our perceptions of beauty proper, like beautiful nature or stuff like that. It just, it just tries to explain the development of art and our values of artistic objects, paintings, songs, music, stuff like that. So that's a huge problem right there. Uh, Dr. Stephen Davis also provides another critique of this view, saying that it's unlikely to be true because uh, there's this universal consistency among human beings towards positive factors uh, in this development or, or aesthetic judgments and universal judgments. There's no mixture of judgments like we, some people like ugly stuff, other people like beautiful stuff. And evolutionarily, the social cohesion factor could just as easily operate negatively, not necessarily as a beneficial factor. Like Davies suggests, well, why couldn't group cohesion fictions also produce group detriments, you know, disseminate inappropriate or transgressive values and and points of view just as easily um, 
spread these immoral sentiments as as well as moral sentiments in the art and stuff like that. So um, that's one one thing he provides that uh, Stephen Davis Davies tries to argue argues against this view and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure it works though because definitely in the history of art we we have had transgressive values. I mean, there's been racist art or sexist art or or you know stuff stuff that is immoral and stuff like that. So I, I need to think over Dave, Davies' argument. He it's, it's his book called Artful Species. He makes this argument. So if you want to think think that over a bit, um, but yeah, it's it's the main fundamental problem with this cohesion theory is it doesn't explain beauty. It doesn't explain beauty proper. It, it lacks explanatory scope in only attempting to exp explain the development of art. Um, and even then, uh, there's some questions as to whether it's factually true or, or is the case or not and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that that covers it in terms of the three main theories I wanted to cover uh, in terms of natural evolutionary explanations for a natural property um, that we could reduce all aesthetic value and value judgments to um, that, you know, atheists and skeptics will try to advance on this objectivist perspective, a realist objective uh, position. Um, okay, so that covers it for that. Um, but it, are naturalists, therefore, have we proven God? No, there's, there's still another major category that we just totally skipped over here. Um, and this is actually the predominant view in the philosophy of aesthetics, including most Christians take this view. Most, most people tend to take this view, and that is the view of aesthetic subjectivism. Aesthetic values and value judgments are subjective. They're ultimately grounded in the subjective experiences and judgments of individual human beings. Um, so that this is the view known as cognitivist positions. So it says there are aesthetic correctness conditions. Things are true or false aesthetically, and our value judgments are true or false. It's true that Picasso is beautiful or good aesthetically or bad aesthetically or something like that. Um, so it's it's not a non-cognitivist perspective, uh, but it's a non-realist perspective. The object is totally irrelevant. And it's a pure subjectivism. It's within a human subject or mind. And the human subject grounds aesthetic values and aesthetic value judgments fully. So I think the first thing to note here is that, well, look, it's definitely plausible. I, I, as we saw when we studied pure objectivism in, in an object, uh, no, an object alone is not, it's necessary, but it's not enough, right? So we need some kind of subjective experience um, to ground the value in some kind of subjective mind uh, to make a cognitive judgment uh, about I believe that thing is ugly, I believe that Picasso's painting is beautiful or whatever it is to form that cognitive evaluational propositional belief and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, th this seems eminently true to me. Yeah, we, we definitely need it. But the subjectivist goes goes further and says, uh, but that's all you need. You can have it totally independently of the object, possibly. Um, and obviously there's there's debates, as I, as I mentioned, well, what is the nature of the aesthetic experience? What kind of aesthetic experience is relevant and to be called valuable or not valuable or something like that? Like I said, there's debates, you know, Clyde Bell said, oh, it's an aesthetic emotion. Others said, no, it's the proper aesthetic attitude and you know there, I'll, I'll provide a couple articles from Stolnitz or something like that to 
uh, or uh, Malcolm Budd, I think, has the best account. I'll, I'll put up his article and stuff like that. Um, basically, he gives sort of a causal conception. So it's the object is necessary to cause a relevant aesthetic experience uh, within a human being or something like that, a valuable experience of a certain type. And you can debate, okay, well, what what counts as a pro as a proper aesthetic experience or something? Um, you know, there's debates about that, but we won't get into that. Um, but yeah, it, it's clear that the subjective experience, experiencer and evaluator is necessary, is required to ground aesthetic values and aesthetic value judgments. Uh, so that's another fifth feature uh, of our aesthetic world or aesthetic reality that any hypothesis that wants to claim is true has to explain. And I think that uh, the arguments uh, for the subjectivist position uh, reveal that. But their problem is they go too far uh, by way of assessment. They say, but that's all that's needed. You don't even need the object. And I think that's really uh, ruled out. Um, so in the first place, uh, Dr. Philip Tallon has really proven this is foolish because, and that the objects are necessary to at least cause. I, I take sort of a causal conception of aesthetic experience, whereby what role does the object play? Well, the objects have certain properties, dispositional properties, I'll call them. Well, I'll explain more about that when we get to the next theory next. But they have certain properties that cause a subject, a subject like me, a perceiving subject, to have a certain aesthetic experience and to thereby make it a certain aesthetic judgment. So that's called a causal conception of aesthetic experience or of aesthetic value. Uh, and that's the view that I go for. Um, but in that case, the object is needed and necessary. And Dr. Philip Tallon uh, offers this argument in his book to, to kind of show that this is so, and I think it's very persuasive, and he, it's called the destruction argument. So imagine a work of art. Uh, it causes uh, this relevant aesthetic experience in you, you know, the Mona Lisa, which I don't find that great personally, but everybody likes it, so I guess it's got to be great. Um, but, but yeah, there's the Mona Lisa or some beautiful temple uh, that is out in the desert or something and it's 5,000 years old and oh it's it, isn't it great and beautiful and all this stuff but now let's pretend it's just the object itself is destroyed Mona Lisa wiped out by fire Isis comes in and wreaks havoc like the fools they are and destroys uh, that temple and erases it the object is gone forever never get it back um, but now let's pretend that, uh, okay, but we can create a hologram, a holographic representation. It's exactly the same as, as the original object, uh, but it's a hologram, and you know it's a hologram. Okay, well, wouldn't that same object, it has the exact same properties, uh, more or less, or seemingly has the same properties, so wouldn't it cause the exact same aesthetic experience? And the answer is no, something's missing. There is something tied to the actual objects themselves that is a part of the phenomenal experience that caused the, that aesthetic experience and that's missing when you don't have the actual artistic object itself and that sort of thing. So, so this destruction argument I think really provides conclusive proof that yeah the object is necessary. You can't just reproduce a subjective experience or create parameters that would create an aesthetic experience and that's enough. Um, 
no, there, there's something missing. And it it's the same. Pretend it's not even a hologram. Pretend you can inject uh, something into your brain so that you're not even aware um, that this thing is just a, a replica and not the real thing. So yeah, you, you have some kind of hallucinate, hallucinatory experience of this thing or, you know, say, or pretend it's a drug. You can take a drug that uh, causes you to have the uh, an aesthetic experience and therefore make this judgment you know you hallucinate uh, a thing uh, the temple or you hallucinate the Mona Lisa and oh isn't that beautiful or something like that so you think you're having this same aesthetic experience or something like that but you're really not well looking from the outside we would say well something's diminished that no they're not really having the same valuable aesthetic experience there's not really that same aesthetic value attached to these memory engrams as there is to the actual artistic uh, as there is to the actual aesthetic experience caused by the original object itself there's something different there there's some kind of diminish aesthetic diminishment in the value that we have uh, so that's the destruction argument offered by dr philip tallon and the philosophy of aesthetics and i think it's uh it makes sense i think this proves that subjective ex the subjective experience and, and subjective cognitive judgment alone are insufficient. They're necessary, but they're insufficient. You, it needs to be sufficiently attached uh, and caused by the, the specific artistic or aesthetic object or beautiful object or whatever it is itself, or ugly object if you're having a, a disvaluable experience and that sort of thing. So, so that's that one argument there in, in this respect that proves um, subjectivism, pure subjectivism doesn't work in terms of grounding our aesthetic values and value judgments because the, uh, the relevant aesthetic experience and value judgments have to be, quote-unquote, as Malcolm Budd puts it, quote-unquote, of the work itself, the relevant work itself. Okay, but there are other problems with uh, aesthetics, pure aesthetic subjectivism as well, and it really struggles um, because it's a relative notion, right? It's relative to individual human ex subjects and experiencers and brains, and obviously we have aesthetic correctness conditions, uh, but there's also aesthetic disagreement. Well, who's right? If it's all relative to individual subjects and you know, the, the, the experiences and ju judgments they have on an individual level, well, then we get contradictory propositions and judgments and stuff like that, and that becomes uh, very problematic. So I, th I think that uh, pure subjectivism struggles to explain aesthetic correctness conditions and that sort of thing. Well, it, it does fully explain aesthetic disagreement, obviously, because people have different subjective experiences on this view, and make different, make their own individual subjective judgments. So that explains disagreement properly. Uh, but it, it fails to, well, what, how do we ground aesthetic uh, correctness conditions? How do we find out who's right or not? And that sort of thing. Um, and it, it seems like it's it's not just, oh, well, it's true for you, but not true for me. That, that doesn't seem to fit with our, our relevant experience where we want to say, no, you're wrong to think that uh, that work is beautiful or that work is ugly or something. You're, you're missing the point. No, there's so much and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't allow for uh, the phenomenon of aesthetic judgment errors. And that's a, that's a seventh feature here, um, that there can be aesthetic error 
in that regard, and subjectivism just doesn't allow for for that. You know, think think of a serial killer who chops off all of his victims' heads and he hangs them up on a rope on his backyard, and he says, "Ah, isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful to me. I'm I'm having a good experience, and I'm judging that that's beautiful." If you're a subjectivist, you have to say, yep, I guess that's true for you. I guess it is beautiful for you. Um, And that sort of thing. Well, that's complete rubbish. No, we we say no serial killer. That's ugly, repulsive, and disgusting. And you should get help. So so yeah, that's another feature that goes hand in hand with aesthetic correctness conditions is that there are aesthetic judgment errors. Uh, and aesthetic value errors. It's wrong to have a good experience when you see a bunch of chopped off heads uh, sitting on a string in a a backyard or something like that. Uh, No, the the correct aesthetic value you should have is being, that's grotesque, oh, that's cringe-inducing and stuff like that. Um, Okay, great. Um, So, so yeah, those are sort of the facts um, and the views, uh, the various um, facts that arise out of some of the the views uh, that uh, I think are not really that good or that fail and that sort of thing, uh, leaving behind the two main views that I want to summarize. So so that's going to be what's called a view called dispositional realism. Uh, So dispositional realism is uh, a naturalistic view. It's kind of in between subjectivism and objectivism. Um, and then there's my view, the uh, theistic dispositional realism. I'll call it that, rather than non-natural agentism, which is what I call it in the in the um, in my essay. I should have called it theistic dispositional realism. That would have made more sense. But uh, yeah, so that's what I'll call it in the show: theistic uh, non-natural uh, dispositional realism. There, there's also another view here uh, called as non-natural aesthetic Platonism. Uh, so that's kind of akin to atheistic moral Platonism, and that's not covered in my essay at all. But um, obviously, that's that's ruled out by things like you know it says, oh well, beautiful just exists, just like justice just exists, or something abstractly. And there are no abstract objects. It requires these things are mental objects grounded in a person, um, in a person's values and stuff like that. So. I think that the the proofs, when we covered objectivism, the proofs that show that a subject, a cognitive experiencing subject is necessary to ground aesthetic value in judgment, just as it's necessary to ground moral values in judgment, uh, kind of rules out the aesthetic atheistic Platonism or atheistic aesthetic Platonism option. Uh, so really, there's only these two options left, natural dispositional realism and then non-natural theistic dispositional realism, or what I call in my essay non-natural agentism. Stupid name. I, I wish I had called it theistic dispositional realism. Anyway, anyways, so, okay, so before we move on and evaluate these two, these two remaining theories, let's review the facts that we've discovered, the aesthetic facts about uh, the nature of aesthetic values and value judgments. Number one, we've discovered that there is, there are such a things as aesthetic truth versus uh, falsity or, or errors. There are correctness conditions for aesthetic values and judgments. Number two, uh, there is genuine aesthetic evaluational 
not just factual disagreement. Number three, uh, aesthetic expertise and improvement or refinement is possible through education and development. Number four, um, remember the, we established aesthetic object relevance, that the aesthetic objects themselves are necessary to ground aesthetic values and value judgments. Number five, um, this, this one, uh, okay, we didn't really, I didn't highlight this, but there's a close correlation between moral value judgments and aesthetic value judgments. Um, yeah, okay, we could, we could ignore that one, but I, I put that one in my essay. Number six, aesthetic valuations and phenomenological experiences, and by aesthetic valuations, I mean cognitive, mind, subjective mind, uh, and subjective phenomenological experiences require a cognitive evaluator and experiencing subject. So a, a conscious subject, i.e. a person, is necessary to ground aesthetic values and value judgments. Seven, um, okay, yes, there is no seven, so I just said, um, oh, well, actually, no, there, there is um, something I didn't cover in the theories above. Uh, but it, it's covered in the next theory. It's a feature that's revealed in the next theory of dispositional realism. Um, but yeah, I guess I'll, I'll just mention it at this point, and then you'll, you'll, it'll make more sense when we cover dispositional realism. But there's also this feature called aesthetic non-deference. And this basically means that we, we tend aesthetically not to defer. As human beings, we don't defer to other human beings about our aesthetic judgments. We don't give a fig Newton what you think's beautiful. That looks like crap to me. The heck with you. I'm right, you're wrong. That's garbage. Or, I'm the heck with you. I'm right, you're wrong. That movie is the best. I don't care if the critics say it sucks. That was great. I loved that movie. Um, so this is what we call, we don't defer to other people about our aesthetic values or value judgments. We have this tendency as human beings. And this tendency is also among aesthetic scholars and that sort of thing. So there's this natural resistance towards deference. And uh, again, there's qualifications there. I mean, um, in certain ways, some people do defer and say, well, the experts know better. They're, they're, he's an art expert, so he must know or something like that. Um, so again it, it's there's there's questions about well, what are they deferring to the experts about more i think they defer more to like factual stuff like oh the, tell me the history of the painting tell me oh he used this period of paint or oh what was he trying to say you know the theories the background knowledge behind the images and stuff like that we're not deferring to the actual values or the valuational judgments we're making that no, this looks like garbage. I don't care what you say. I don't care about the historical, cultural background of the painting. It's crap. It's Or it's, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It's amazing. Um, I don't care that Hitler painted it. It's, it looks great. Um, or something like that. So, so yeah, uh, we'll cover that in a bit more detail when I get into the next theory of dispositional realism. So, so yeah, those are the, the main features. Uh, the seven main features that uh, need to be explained by a given hypothesis and I'm going to be asking well we've got two remaining hypotheses naturalistic dispositional realism the one that atheists and skeptics are desperately hoping for or we have theistic dispositional realism 
the truth and uh, victorious explanation that I think is the best explanation. It, it's better at explaining these three, these seven aesthetic features of reality than uh, naturalistic dispositional realism. Okay, so with that said, let's get into uh, explaining the theories and assessing it. So, so let's first look at naturalistic dispositional realism. What is this? I said before, this is kind of a combination or in-between type of view. It's uh, a realist view, right, in the name dispositional realism. Um, so in that sense, it, it acknowledges that a property of the objects themselves are necessary to ground aesthetic values and judgments. So check on that feature already. And in particular, okay, well, what's the property? What, what do you mean um, the object is necessary? Uh, for this realist, what's the property of the artistic aesthetic object that is has the property of being beautiful or whatever? And I think uh, so. Independent of questions of you know whether the property is reductionistic or something, I, I think that what it is is their objects have dispositional properties. Uh, so hence the name dispositional realism, right? So a, a given object like the Mona Lisa has the property of being disposed towards causing a certain perceiving subject to have a certain experience and to make a certain cognitive judgment. So that's the causal conception of aesthetic value and value judgments. A given object has the property of being disposed towards producing a certain experiential and cognitive effect in a given subject. Uh, it, you know, and from dispositional realism, obviously that's at the level of being a human being causing a human being uh, to have that relevant aesthetic experience and make that relevant aesthetic judgment. So yeah, Levinson, uh, the paper in Levin, by Levinson goes into great detail about emergent dispositional properties and that sort of thing. So to think of, okay, well, what do you mean by a dispositional property? What, what does it mean for an object to be, quote unquote, disposed to creating, a, to causing a certain effect? And it's kind of like uh, if you think of the property yellowness or, or, you know, the apple is red. It has the property of being red. Oops, very wrong, says the dispositional realist. The apple, it's false to say that the apple has the property of being red. It doesn't. Color does not exist at the level of, it, of the object itself, independent. If there was no human being, there would be no redness in that apple, you know, independent of a human being. Uh, perceiver of the apple and the reason is because the apple look the physical object itself just has primary property what philosophers call primary properties you know weight mass stuff like that so it it has the the property of reflecting light light waves in a certain way that's that's the property that the object itself has and that property of light reflection in that specific way uh, is a dispositional property because it disposes a perceiving experiencer or a perceiving subject when they're per perceiving that light being re that property of the apple light re reflected in a certain way boom my soul experiences the secondary property or qualia of the sensation of redness or red uh sensation and that's a property in the soul of the subjective experiencer um, but it's wrong to say that the object itself is red. The object itself isn't red, but it disposes a perceiving subject to have the experience of a sensation of redness. Um, so that's what we mean by a dispositional properties. And that's what I think is happening with aesthetic or beautiful or ugly objects. 
um, you know, they, they have certain properties that dispose, uh, that are disposed to cause a perceiving subject, uh, you know, a proper perceiving subject to have uh, a, a relevant experience or quale or, or whatever it is. You know, oh, that's beautiful. And then to make the subsequent cognitive evaluative judgment uh, in regards to the object. So that's the dispositional realism part. That's the objectivism check. Yeah, the aesthetic objects are necessary. No object, nothing can cause the experiencer to have, uh, to be, you know, nothing is disposed to cause the, ex the subject to have an, a given experience or make a certain judgment. So the object's necessary. Uh, then on the other hand, the subjective experience is, experiencer is obviously necessary as well on this view, right? Um, However, there is some nuance here uh, in terms of who is the proper subject uh, to have this value, valuable experience or valuable cognitive judgment, evaluative cognitive judgment. And here, this is where dispositional realists are different than subjectivists. They just say, well, it's not just any old human. Um, it's not every human. Some human, some humans are dumb and not good enough to make these judgments. So it's really uh, the art experts, only their experiences, only their judgments ground aesthetic values and uh, proper aesthetic judgments. And this is how they handle the aesthetic correctness conditions or aesthetic errors. They say, well, maybe Joe Blow is an error and he's wrong. he has wrong judgments because he's contradicting what the experts say. The experts say Mona Lisa's good. Dale, you weren't that impressed by Mona Lisa. But who are you? You're not an art expert. Um, you know, who cares? You're wrong. They're right. You're wrong. So aesthetic values and judgments are ultimately grounded in the experiences and judgments of art experts, certain qualified individuals. And uh, David Hume was really the first one to give this because back in the 1700s, the standard of taste is what they called this issue. And that was very popular at the time. Lots of philosophers were going on it. But yeah, the atheistic philosopher David Hume is the one who invented this dispositional realism. And, you know, he's the one that advanced. Yeah, it's really the intellectual elites, the artistic elites. They're the ones that get to decide what's beautiful, what's not. Um, and this was advocated for more recently by uh, other philosophers. Like in 1970, Dr. Michael Sloat, and I'll put his paper up. He, totally independently of Hume, he, he gave this sort of dispositional realist view as well. So yeah, I'll, I'll put up their papers as well as uh, some critical papers criticizing this view of dispositional realism. But, but yeah, so, so in this way, it, it handles aesthetic disagreements. It provides, it provide, sorry, aesthetic correctness conditions. It provides, well, your judgment is either correct insofar as it's consistent with the artistic experts, and it's wrong, incorrect, if it's inconsistent with the artistic expert. So it handles, alleges to handle that feature. Now it doesn't handle aesthetic disagreement or the seventh feature, the aesthetic um, non-deference feature properly. And this is something that's in the critical papers by uh, Dan Evers that I'll give, as well as um, Malcolm Budd again, who, who critiques David Hume. And they'll say, well, look, we don't, we, even the art experts themselves don't defer because there's disagreement even within the art experts. There's not universal consensus up there. So that, so this theory kind of fails when it comes to aesthetic disagreement or struggles with it, at the very least. Aesthetic disagreement among the art experts themselves, 
um, and it also struggles with uh, the aesthetic non-deference feature, the seventh and last feature that I mentioned. It also, because it grounds it in humans, um, it also kind of struggles with that fifth feature that I just mentioned um, we could ignore, and I realize now why I have it. it um, there's this interesting link or correlation between aesthetic values and value judgments and moral values and moral value judgments, and even the atheists. The, the philosophy of uh, aesthetics is rife with a lot of conversation about morality and ethics and moral values and stuff like that. So, um, I, in Ayer's paper, for example, 90% of his article is all about morality. Uh, and then at just the end, he tacks out, oh yeah, and the same is true about aesthetics and stuff like that. So there's this, this correlation. Um, and that's doesn't make sense on the naturalistic dispositional realism view, right? It's, it's hard to explain why would there be this correlation between those two values, seeming correlation between moral values and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the papers by, I think, Ricky, Ricky Davy Jar Jarvis um, that I'll be linking to in my blog goes into great detail proving, uh, even scientifically, cognitive science has proven this linkage between moral value and aesthetic value. What is good is beautiful, and what is beautiful is good. Uh, seems to be hardwired into the human brain. And this this doesn't make sense. It makes sense from theistic dispositional realism, as we'll see, because what well, God designed, God's the source of moral value, God's the source of aesthetic value, and he designed humans to reflect that both of those those things and for both of those and he designed the world so that both of those things would be connected beautiful things would be moral moral things would be beautiful in general obviously there's exceptions due to the curse of sin and the fall and stuff like that but yeah that just speaking uh for naturalistic dispositional realism struggles with that that constant correlation or that seeming General, uh, general truth that moral values are seem to be correlated with aesthetic values um, for human beings for some reason. Um, now, naturalistic dispositional realism definitely handles uh, other features. Um, sorry, let me just scroll up here. Uh, yeah, the education and development, it handles this perfectly, right? Because you can get refined, you become an expert. And uh, Hume, and as well as others, philosophers of aesthetics that take this view have detailed at least four or five criteria. What does it mean to be a true judge or an ideal aesthetic or artistic judge? And number one, you can't be biased, you can't be prejudiced in some way. So if, you, if you're allowing your bias to take over, then you're no longer functioning as a as an ideal judge. Um, you know, you have to have the proper training and education and stuff like that. And uh, let me let me see if I can find the list here of the properties. Okay, here it is. So, so yeah, generally speaking, there are four fundamental qualifications that naturalistic dispositional realists have provided for a human to be considered an ideal judge. So number one, they have to have what's called delicacy of taste. So there, there are aesthetic taste buds, as it were, have to be sufficiently sensitive to all of the various dispositional properties of an of a given object to and to be able to understand, uh, to appreciate and to detect all of the the nuances in that respect. Number two, they have to have experience, relevant experience or education, uh, with works or things of beauty and that sort of thing. Number three, um, again, as I said, they have to approach the work without bias or prejudice being present. 
And number four, they have to have, quote unquote, good sense in the form of intellect and understanding. So, you know, that can come into play with, okay, you understand the background of the work, you understand the, the paints and the meaning behind, okay, well, why did he use this canvas versus this one? And how is that relevant to his painting in any way? Because a lot of times the, the medium that artists use to make a painting or to deliver a song is just as important as uh, the content itself and that sort of thing. So you have to have good sense in the form of having a proper intellect and understanding. And again, that comes through education or refinement and development um, to properly appreciate the work of art or the thing of beauty. Uh, so those are the, what it means. That's what uh, dispositional realism is in a nutshell. And we've kind of gone over and assessed a little bit of some of the features, how it performs in that regards. Uh, just one last note to, to throw in here. In terms of the dispositional realism, the objective, the object part, the properties of the object, dispositional properties of the object. Uh, so in the first place, my view is that those properties are emergent properties um, on the primary properties themselves. So the number one primary property is an apple has the property of reflecting light in a certain way. That's a property in and of itself. But in addition, there's an emergent dispositional property whereby it's it's disposed when it reflects light to cause the experience and that sort of thing. Um, so so there's some nuance there. It doesn't affect anything in terms of our assessment, but just understand I, I'm kind of with Levinson where I think that um, dispositional properties are emergent. They're not reductionistic. Um, you know, they kind of supervene upon the properties themselves, just as red, uh, the disposition towards red to cause red sensation is emergent and supervenes upon the physical property of light reflecting off a, an apple a certain way or something like that. So that that's just an important nuance that I wanted to throw in there. Um, okay, great. So let's turn now to the victorious model, theistic dispositional realism and my argument for God. Is that better than naturalistic dispositional realism? Well, in the same way, the, the theistic uh, dispositional realism is exactly the same as naturalistic dispositional realism in, in, in certain ways, right? So, number one, it says, yep, uh, it's required that there has to be an a given object um, that has disposition, emergent dispositional properties that uh, cause a relevant subject, a proper uh, person or subject to have the appropriate aesthetic experience, a valuable aesthetic experience, and consequently make the appropriate associated cognitive evaluative judgment uh, in terms of its aesthetic value. Um, so yep, uh, check, it's exactly the same as the naturalistic dispositional realist there. Likewise, it's also exactly the same in that it says, well, there, there has to be uh, a conscious subject or person that has the experience and therefore grounds the valuable experience. Uh, the value in that experience, sorry, uh, and also has a mind that makes that propositional belief through their cognitive faculties that says, yeah, I evaluate this to be beautiful. I evaluate this to be uh, ugly because I had a disvaluable experience when I saw it or something like that. So yeah, check. It's exactly the same as dispositional realism. Now here's an important difference. Uh, who is the proper subject? When we're coming to aesthetic correctness conditions, naturalists have to appeal to other humans, uh, like 
artistic judges, the true ideal judge, art experts, beauty experts, stuff like that. Um, but that was problematic when it came to the issue of non-deference because we don't give a fig, Newton, what some artsy-fartsy guy said up in his ivory tower. He's a, he's a fool. He's wrong. If he says Picasso's good, sorry, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, I'm right, he's wrong kind of thing. We don't want to defer to the experts. And in fact, the experts themselves don't want to defer to other experts either in their judgments. So so um, that it struggled with the non-deference. It struggled with the fact that uh, there's aesthetic disagreement even among the art experts. Uh, and finally, it also struggled with the constant correlations between moral values and aesthetic value judgments. So... Theistic dispositional realism is superior and solves, I think, solves the problems of naturalistic dispositional realism. So it has all of the benefits of naturalistic dispositional realism. So I'm letting David Hume and atheists do all my hard work for me in proving that the other positions are probably false and that therefore naturalistic dispositional realism is better than all those other explanations at explaining these artistic, uh, aesthetic features, not artistic, aesthetic features, because aesthetic includes artistic and natural beauty. But um, in addition, it, it's superior, theistic dispositional realism is superior to the naturalistic version in that it solves the three problems it has. Number one, theistic uh, dispositional realism imposits God. And he is the source of the correctness conditions. Does God have the is God caused to have the appropriate experience and make the necessary cognitive judgment when he looks at a given object or sees something, uh, and then he has that experience that he deems valuable, and then says I, that's beautiful, that's ugly, um, or something like that. So this solves the issue. There's only one true God. And so there is no aesthetic disagreement among the proper ideal judges. There is only one ideal judge or three, if you believe in the Trinity and that sort of thing. But they're in total universal agreement because they're one be three persons, one being. They can never dis it's impossible for them to disagree with each other, that sort of thing. So that solves the issue of aesthetic disagreement among experts. No, there is no such thing. God is the ultimate source. If you if you ex have experiences consistent with God as a human being and make cognitive uh, valuational judgments about beauty consistent in the same way that God would, then you're correct. If you're inconsistent with God, you're incorrect. So it explains this and solves the issue of aesthetic disagreement, whereas naturalistic dispositional realism doesn't because we know that art experts disagree and don't give a fig Newton about uh, the other's opinion. Who, who am I supposed to believe, expert X or expert Y? Uh, with God, I don't have that problem. He is the ultimate standard. I was created to reflect him. Just like I'm created to reflect him morally, I'm created to reflect him aesthetically. So he is the standard. Uh, his experiences and his judgments, uh, I'm either correct if I'm consistent with that, I'm incorrect if I'm inconsistent with that. In terms of the uh, you know, aesthetic education and development. Yep, that well, that counts, right? You can become more refined through education and that sort of thing. You could say that you're becoming more refined and getting closer and closer to God, reflecting perfectly God's ex aesthetic experiences and judgments. Um, as I said, object relevance is there and that sort of thing. Uh, God is 
in terms of uh, the close correlation between moral values and aesthetic value judgments, uh, you know, psychologically, we just have it ingrained within us. Well, that makes sense because God designed us and designed the universe to be that way. So that's why there would be this general truth why we associate moral value with aesthetic value uh, and vice versa. Even if you want to point to, well, certain exceptions or uh, contradictory examples, you know, like obviously sometimes we think the the handsome guy or the beautiful uh, girl are, are, well, they must be morally good then and they turn out to be the bad guy, right? And, oh, it's the ugly duckling. That's, that's who's truly morally good and stuff like that. So there are exceptions to this and that's a result of, from a Christian perspective, the fall. Um, but that, it still leads to... It still doesn't um, negate the fact that there, it's a scientifically proven fact, not even just a philosophical one, but scientifically proven in cognitive uh, science, in cognitive science right now in research, that it's a psychological fact. Humans associate moral value with aesthetic values. It's ingrained into us for whatever reason. And we also have this close correlation that seems to be logically demonstrated in a lot of philosophical arguments from the medieval times onwards uh, and that sort of thing. So, well, that's that's explained beautifully by the theistic dispositional realist hypothesis. God designed the world to be beautiful and morally perfect correlated together. So what's more what's beautiful is morally is morally good. What's morally good is beautiful and that sort of thing and any exceptions are explained by a corruption of that design, divine design plan, and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, there, there may be some issues there, um, but I think the fact that the general truth, that there is this correlation between moral value and aesthetic value, establishes that it's more likely than not that, yeah, the theistic dispositional realist perspective makes sense. God designed it that way, uh, and things got a little messed up because we... Human beings, through their free will, chose to sin against God and curse the entire universe, and everything became distorted and disrupted. So there's bound to be certain counterexamples and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that uh, that fifth one is perhaps the most, the hardest one, the most problematic for the theistic uh, dispositional realist hypothesis in terms of what's it called? In terms of explanatory power, um, but. I think it can be readily defeated. The, the Christian, through the fall, has a, a ready explanation or defeater for this if an atheist wants to throw the, that objection out against this hypothesis. Yeah, uh, also in terms of aesthetic non-deference. So human beings have this, uh, they don't want to defer to other human beings, whether they're experts or not. I don't care what that guy says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Ah, theistic dispositional realism solves that because you can't do that with God. You at best, you are designed to reflect God. Um, so it solves this. Theistic dispositional realism says that you at best, it's in your own best interest to want to reflect God's uh, aesthetic experiences and judgments. And if you're not, then you're in error and you're not uh, you're not living the good life. You're not a, you're you're appreciating ugly things, you know and you're perverted in, in some way um, and that sort of thing. Just like the serial killer getting a kick out of his chopped off heads sitting on a string. Uh, no. Um, theistic dispositional realism provides us with a reason, namely God's design, uh, that says, no, that serial killer ought to defer to God's experiences and God's 
uh, judgment in terms of aesthetics and that sort of thing. And uh, I don't think you can do that. That's superior uh, to naturalistic dispositional realism because there's no reason for the serial killer or the ordinary Joe to give a fig Newton about artistic experts. I don't care what they think about the Mona Lisa. I look at it, and in terms of value at least, I'm, I might look to art experts on a factual level. They know more than me about the facts. Of who who painted the Mona Lisa? Obviously everyone knows that, but I mean, uh, what are the circumstances? Uh, uh, you've studied the painting close up. Are there certain features that I don't know about? Is there a little guy hiding in the corner? Uh, is one eyeball uh, shorter than the other, smaller than the other, stuff like that. The art experts, I would defer to the art experts on those kinds of factual things and, and to gain facts from them because I wouldn't be aware of that. But we don't defer to them on the level of aesthetic values. No, I know that that's garbage. I know that that is the best thing I've ever seen. I don't care what the experts say. I'm right, they're wrong. And, and that's sort of our, our attitude. No, my aesthetic values are, are good. I'm, I'm sorry, abstract art, I will never understand it. Uh, I get that all the experts think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, um, but it's not. Uh, I'm more into classical, uh, traditional Renaissance painting type paintings and realist uh, type, type paintings. I think those are beautiful, whereas abstract art uh, is not really that beautiful. Uh, and I just don't get it. Uh, and I'm not going to defer to a bunch of artsy-fartsy types uh, in the ivory towers who say, well, you should. You're, you're just an unsophisticated primitive. Um, well, with theistic dispositional realism, there's a, there's a, a plausible reason why I, I should ought. I ought to reflect God's judgments and God's experiences uh, because, namely, he's the one that designed me to do such uh, for my own best interests. Uh, it's good for me to reflect God's experiences and judgments, so that's why I'm motivated to go, I'm going to defer to God. Does God like this? Great. Then he's right. This is good. Does he hate this? It, it, you know, he he thinks sin is ugly. This this sin, um, I think this... Uh, uh, these this couple committing fornication or something this is this is beautiful a lot of human beings will say oh this is so beautiful or or like homosexual unions or something oh that's so beautiful uh well that disgusts god the christian god that disgusts god according to the bible and, and that sort of thing so i ought to reflect god and be disgusted too i shouldn't be experiencing that as beautiful or making cognitive judgments that that sexual sins are beautiful or something like that just as an example but yeah on naturalistic um dispositional realism i don't care there, there's no reason for me to defer to the experiences and opinion judgments of the art experts i just don't don't care the art experts themselves don't care and don't defer to each other uh when they have a minority position or have a, a contrary views or something like that so why should i so yeah, in light of that, that's that's it. I think that kind of covers my argument and why I say, okay, look, we can get to the fact that dispositional realism is the best naturalistic position or hypothesis for explaining the known aesthetic facts, but it has certain problems. And thus, theistic dispositional realism is superior uh, to that and therefore um, is the best explanation and 
you know, obviously in terms of plausibility, people will just say, yeah, but that's a non-natural option. Non-natural options are less simplistic or there's, uh, it's implausible to picture a non a non-natural mind or person or something like that, like a spiritual person, a soul without a body and stuff like that. Um, but again, I, those are easily defeated. I mean, that gets in debates about substance dualism. We, we can easily refute that and show that God, uh, a God is plausible and uh, he's simple. Like there's different definitions of sim of what it means to be simple. And he, he's, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that those, those kinds of objections are just kind of the same thing you get in any debate about whether it's the moral argument or, you know, any, any kind of thing when you get involved with atheists and skeptics and they're easily defeated and shown that God is not improbable on those grounds. Uh, so if you're just looking at the aesthetic debates, uh, we can prove that dispositional realism is the best that the atheists and skeptics have got and that theistic dispositional realism is superior to that. So therefore, theistic dispositional realism must be true. Therefore, that means God uh, must exist. That's that's the argument. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll look out next week. Um, I will try to get up my cosmological argument uh, part 3b solo show up. Finally, that'll finish off premise one once and for all on the, it's taking the Kalam cosmological argument on the scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe to, in order to prove, well, the universe began to exist, therefore it's not eternal. If it's not eternal, it is therefore contingent and not logically necessary. Finally, that will be done. Uh, and then in part four, I'll have up in, in a week after, or a couple weeks after, uh, I'll be moving on to warrant, providing the warrant for my premise two, which is the principle of sufficient reason that uh, says, okay, great, you have your, cos your cosmic fact that the universe exists contingently. Then premise two says, well, that requires an explanation in an external cause. That's what I'll be arguing for with the principle of sufficient reason. Uh, and then when I get to premise three in part five, that'll be where I say, and that explanation is God uh, or, you know, God one or something like that. So, so that's the plan for that. Uh, yeah, other than that, have a great week, everybody.